every law creates an outlaw. And you'll find this statement in different philosophies. Um, and it is true. We've talked about perverse incentives on this podcast before, and hopefully I'll remember at the end to remind you to go look for that episode as an expansion on this idea. But something that I was looking at today struck me, and I wanted to talk about it. Because you can say, oh, well, these examples that Jason gave happened a long time ago, and of course those were silly people who uh, didn't have the brains to deal with the problems that they were presented with <laughs> and uh, well the truth is man has not changed much through history and those guys were a lot like you and me they had a few different limiting beliefs and ideas about how things should be but uh, as far as brain power and problem-solving ability hmm, I think they might even be superior to us because we've been weakened by our dependence on technology at the end of World War I 1918 and then the peace treaty 1919 uh, Clemenceau the President of France was pushing for this Clause 231, which gave the peacemakers a big power to punish Germany. They had the War Guilt Clause, so they blamed the war on Germany, which has become a debatable thing uh, as time has gone on. Remember what I said about documentation and uh, lack of documentation, meaning the story changes over time. So that story has definitely changed over time and if you look back at the uh, precise incidents leading up to World War One, you'll find it gets very slushy and nobody really has a good chronology of who talked to who when and what happened. So we've got this clause, they take territory away from Germany, they give a lot of it to Poland, um, but let's talk about the armed forces. Now Germany had had an extremely large army, millions of people based on conscription, everybody was in and and all the nations except uh, Britain were doing this Britain kept a volunteer force and so that's why it was so much smaller than the others everybody else Russia France all the other countries would conscript their young men send them into the army for two or three years and train them up and then uh, send them back home and the idea here is you've, you're, you're creating this uh, group of trained soldiers who are off-duty but when the war starts, you call them up, and this is what's called mobilization. So those guys get their telegram, and they're told to go to a mustering station at a, at a train station. They're brought somewhere where they're formed into, you know, squads, platoons, corps, etc., and then they're ready to go, right? And, and uh, so that allows you to have a large potential energy, right, of armed forces sitting there ready to go. Well... In this article in the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was restricted to 100,000 men in their army. That's it. And I think uh, 1,000 or 2,000 officers. That's it. So they were not allowed to conscript anymore. The soldiers must be volunteers. And there were no submarines allowed. Germany was not allowed to have any airplanes. And they were limited to only six battleships. And also they were not allowed to have any tanks. So, they have this really puny armed forces again. Um, the idea is to make Germany so weak on the armed forces side of things that they'll never be able to uh, threaten anybody ever again. Well, looking back, we see how that turned out. Uh, the problem was this treaty had no real teeth as far as uh, being able to audit and enforce. Okay? And everybody buggered off home. The Britons, you know, the British went home. The Americans went home, and the French, who were the weakest, were left there uh, with 
<laughs> all the responsibility of, uh, of collecting the reparations payments and, and monitoring this stuff and enforcing the clauses of the treaty. And, you know, it didn't turn out very well. So here's what the Germans did. They did two things. And if you don't think that people in your own organization are doing stuff like this, think again. At Cold Star, agents go in and document things and then check to see if what was told to us is what is actually happening. And we frequently find evidence of non-compliance, i.e. people are not doing what they said they were doing. And if you investigate further, you'll find either somebody's stealing or there's a perverse incentive or somebody is just saying, look, uh, the owner said to do this, but I don't agree with that, so I'm secretly doing this other thing. And so this is an example of that. On the economic side, what the Germans did, they had to pay $6,600 million in reparations. That, that's an astounding figure. Right? And so in order to do this, now that the stupid thing that the Allies did was they said this had to be paid in German marks. That one currency. It should have been payable in another currency, but you know, that's what they did. And so what the German diplomats went and did, the civil service, said, okay, secretly, we're going to devalue our own currency. So what was one mark? is now 10 marks or 100 marks or 1,000 marks. And you get this runaway inflation, which wiped out the savings of the middle class and sent the country into a tailspin, which allowed the Nazis to come in. Okay, these are not the Nazis doing this. This is just the standard post-war civil service in the 20s. The German Nazis did not come in until the 30s and largely continued these policies. So think about that. You're saying pay us in this one currency? Okay, fine. We'll blow the currency up, and so we'll be able to pay you uh, back faster. Right? And, uh, well, it's going to have a domestic impact and, and kill a lot of our people. But, you know, hey, we, we want to get out of this, and uh, leadership will be fine. We can just take what we want or create what we want. And so that, you see how this behavior is created by, uh, by this ridiculous um, reparations demand. Now, coming back to the armed forces, that 100,000 men in the army and only 1,000 or 2,000 officers, what did the Germans do about that? And again, this is pre-Nazi Germany. This is a thing called the Weimar Republic, which was universally hated. There were assassinations of Weimar officials in Germany in the 20s. It was a very tumultuous time. So, the German armed forces that are left and the uh, civil servants go to the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union has very few friends. They're a new nation. They've been fighting a civil war. They've gotten engaged in a war with Poland to try and take territory that didn't turn out very well. They say to the Soviets, look, we can be audited. We can be looked at, right? Uh, the French are going to look anyway, and at least the French, maybe others. What if we rent some territory from you and we play with airplanes, tanks, and train our officers in Soviet territory where no one is looking. And this is the agreement that they reached with the Soviets. So the Germans, Weimar and then the Nazi Germans, were quite buddy-buddy with, uh, with the Soviet armed forces. And so they just set up training stations in Soviet territory. A German officer part of the 100,000, remember, would 
travel to the Soviet Union, the moment he crossed the border, blip, he stopped being a German officer. He became a Soviet officer, put on the Soviet uniform of equivalent rank. And now we're at 100,000 minus one. We can actually grab another guy if we want to and put him in that, <laughs> the German side of things. And he stays there for two, three years, right? Then he comes back. And if he's been uh, promoted during that time in the Soviet rank, he is given that rank in the, uh, in the German army. So think about that. Every law creates an outlaw. You say we can't train here? Fine. We'll go create a secret agreement with somebody who we say is our ideological enemy and go and uh, actually, in, in the German Nazi case, ideological, Weimar not so much because there was a lot of social democrats, socialists uh, in the field at the time. But we'll just take it off your radar. That is the point that I want to get across here. By being so harsh in that Treaty of Versailles about the limits on how Germany could operate, they simply created the opportunity for smart men to go create a solution. And this will be happening in your company. If somebody doesn't like a direction that you're going in or a statement, a limitation that you've made. Uh, I can remember Dan Kennedy a long time ago writing, I mean, this is probably in, the, in a book in the 90s when he was still self-publishing and hadn't met Bill Glazer yet to form Glazer Kennedy. I was reading his books back then. Uh, a story about a lady who was selling um, something that went on a like a magazine rack or a book rack that went into drugstores and there was some limit on how they could do this and so the the store owner and her spent the night writing up these essentially fake purchase orders and agreements and whatnot to circumvent the rules that the book selling company that she represented had come up with and so people will do this stuff People will do this stuff. So the harsher you are on the limits that you set, the more likely it is that somebody smart is going to say, fine, we'll just pop up over here where you're not looking and you can't audit and you can't see what's going on and do our stuff over there, even in your own business. So the lesson here, I think, the one that I draw from is don't be so harsh. Create a reasonable solution that you can see and audit. Create something that you can look at. Because if it happens in a way that's off your radar, invisible to you, who knows what's going on over there, right? And this could have tremendous impact on PR when it comes out, right? If, if, if the secret is leaked, that the Germans are, are creating this uh, training ground in, in the Soviet Union. Imagine what would happen if that had been leaked. There would have been a huge outcry and a response and, and uh, something <laughs> very violent may have happened, right? So certainly something harsh. Whereas if they had said, okay, you can have a million men or something like that and 10,000 officers or something. I mean, Germany post-World War I was not allowed to have an officer school, a war college. They weren't allowed to have a general staff college. Think about that, right? You're not allowed to train your guys. What do you think is going to happen? They immediately, first of all, the Germans divvied it up, what, what had been the, the uh, General Staff College. They divvied the responsibilities up between different or, other organizations. And, and for those of you who don't know, uh, the way they would do this stuff is like a, part of the German nuclear program in World War II was funded by the German post office. Okay, So they find very clever 
civil service folders to drop stuff in and, and hide them there and whatnot. And so they, they'd send you over to that. It's like sending you to the DMV, right? And Okay, uh, in, underneath the guise of that, you're going to be trained. Um, and all the German officers at the time were trained uh, to handle two ranks higher than their actual rank, so that when things did get back to normal and they could expand, uh, they, they would be able to just automatically hop up and take those, those roles. So be careful of the demands and the limitations that you put on your people, your adversaries, because every law creates an outlaw and the smart people will simply go and figure out another way to do it off your radar. And personally, I think it's better to have a solution that isn't as great for you maybe on the outside, right, uh, uh, to all appearances, but on the other hand, be observable so that you can watch what's going on to make the, the uh, reasoning or the impetus for this kind of sneaky activity to be much lowered and for people to play a little more fair with you so that you can keep an eye on what's actually going on. If you've enjoyed this, I did remember, uh, go check out the uh, podcast episode I did on perverse incentives. It's uh, quite a different example than the one I've discussed here. And again, this stuff is going on all the time in organizations that we talk to, and it's widespread out there. It might even be in your business. This is Jason Cadigan from Cold Star Technologies. Thanks for listening.